for this morning is from 1 Kings. If you uh, are familiar with your Old Testament, 1st and 2nd Kings was titled thusly because the subject matter traces the history of the kings of Israel and Judah all the way from Solomon to the Babylonian captivity. It was written at about 550 BC. Now the author is unclear. Many speculate that it might have been Ezra or Ezekiel, perhaps Jeremiah, although if it was Jeremiah, somebody else would have had to have written the last couple of chapters of Second Kings because Jeremiah had passed. But whoever the author is, they wrote it as a captive in Babylon. And it was not just a history of the kings, but it was also to show that the success of any king, the success of any nation, depends on the measure of allegiance to God and the laws of God. It's about faithfulness and relationship to God. That's what determines the success or the failure of a kingdom or a nation. And so that's what our scripture lesson for today is about. It's about a king named Ahab. And it starts out in 1 Kings 19, it starts out, Ahab reported to Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the massacre of the prophets. Jezebel immediately sent a messenger to Elijah with a threat. The gods will get you for this, and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as any one of those prophets. So wait a minute. What's going on here with Elijah and Jezebel? What exactly did Elijah do that has Jezebel in such a tizzy? Well, if you remember your first kings, the people of Israel are divided. You have some worshiping God, and then the other half are worshiping the false god, Baal. Now, King Ahab has given in to the desires of his wife, Jezebel, who worships Baal and who has systematically murdered all of the prophets of God until Elijah is the only one left. And so Elijah challenges Ahab and tells him to gather all the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets in all. Gather them on Mount Carmel, he tells Ahab, for a showdown. And while you're at it, summon all of the people of Israel to witness. And so Ahab, feeling smug, and at the prompting of Jezebel, I'm sure, does just that. So Elijah says, I'm the only prophet of God left in Israel. And there are 450 prophets of Baal. Let the Baal prophets pick up two oxen. 
Tell them to pick one, butcher it, lay it out on the altar, on the firewood, but don't light the fire. And Elijah says, I'll take the other ox, I'll cut it up, I'll lay it on the wood, but I won't light the fire either. (laughs) Then you pray to your God, and I'll pray to God, the one true God, and the God who answers with fire will prove to be, in fact, God. So all the people say, that's a good plan, let's do it. So Elijah tells the Baal prophets, choose your ox, prepare it, you go first. You're the majority. There's more of you than there are of me. Pray to your God, but don't light the fire. And so they took the ox that he had given them. He prepared it for the altar. And then they prayed to Baal. They prayed all morning long. Oh, Baal, answer us. But nothing happened. Not so much as a whisper of a breeze. That's what the Bible says. Then desperate, the prophets of Baal jump and stomp on the altar that they had made. By noon, Elijah had started to make fun of them, taunting them. Call a little louder. He's a god after all. Maybe he's off meditating somewhere. Or maybe he's gotten involved in a project. Or maybe he's on vacation. You don't suppose he might have overslept, do you? And needs to be woken up. So they prayed louder and louder and they started cutting themselves with swords and knives which was a common ritual to the priests of Baal until they were all covered with blood. And this went on until well past noon. They used every religious trick and strategy that they knew how to do. Everything they knew to do to make something happen on the altar But nothing happened, not so much as a whisper, not a flicker of flame. Nothing. So then Elijah told the people, enough of that. It's my turn. And he told them to gather around. And so they gathered closer around the altar. And Elijah put the altar back together because you remember they, in their frustration, had stomped it and destroyed it. He put the altar back together, but... As he was building it, he took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Jacob. The same Jacob to whom God had said, from now on your name is Israel. He built the stones into the altar in honor of God, and then Elijah dug a wide trench all the way around the altar. And he laid firewood on the altar and he cut up the ox and he put it on the wood and he told the people, fill four buckets with water and drench both the ox and the firewood. And then he said, do it again. And they did it. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the altar was drenched and the trench was filled with water. Now when it was time for the sacrifice to be offered, Elijah the prophet came up and prayed, O God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make it known right now that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I'm doing what I'm doing under your orders. Answer me, God. Answer me and reveal to this your people that you are God 
the true God, and that you're giving these people another chance at repentance. Immediately the fire of God fell and burned up the offering, the wood, the stones, the dirt, and even the water in the trench. All the people saw it happen and fell on their faces in awed worship, exclaiming, God is the true God. God is the true God. And Elijah told him, grab the Baal prophets, don't let one get away. And they grabbed them. And Elijah had them taken down to the brook Kishon, and they massacred the lot. So Jezebel's hopping mad. Elijah had showed her God, small g, Baal, to be a false god. And not only that, but Elijah had had all of the false prophets killed. So what happens next is just a little bit puzzling. Elijah, who had just called down fire from heaven to prove that his God is the one true almighty God, Elijah, who had just defeated an army of Baal's prophets, that same Elijah, the Bible says, becomes fearful and runs away. That's puzzling. What have you got to be scared of, Elijah? But it says, when Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah. He left his young servant there, and then he went on into the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. Exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone broom bush, the Bible says. That doesn't make any sense at all. How does Elijah go from complete victory to utter despair? How does a person lose hope so quickly? especially in light of everything they've just experienced. But then I think about life. And life can be like that, can't it? One minute we are on top of the world, or at least on top of our little world. And the next minute we are suddenly overwhelmed by it all, maybe even overwhelmed by the success All of a sudden, we have an onset of increased responsibility beyond anything we ever could have imagined. Maybe there are expectations of others for guidance, for direction, and we just don't feel qualified. Suddenly, an angel shook him awake and said, get up and eat. He looked around and to his surprise, right by his head were a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water. He ate the meal and went back to sleep. 
Then the angel of God came back, shook him awake again, and said, Get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. And so he got up, ate, and drank his fill, and set out. Nourished by that meal, he walked forty days and forty nights all the way to the mountain of God to Horeb. When he got there, he crawled into a cave and went to sleep. Then the word of God came to him. Why are you here, Elijah? That's an excellent question. It's a question that could be asked many different ways. And depending on where we put the emphasis, we could realize a different response. You see, we might ask, why are you here, Elijah? Which might suggest that we don't at all understand why you think it necessary to run and hide from your enemies when clearly the one true God has your back. Why? Why on earth are you here, Elijah? Why? Or we could ask, why are you here, Elijah? Which might suggest that we're surprised that the one remaining prophet of God, a man clearly in good standing with the Lord, a man who should be secure and reveling in the favor of God, would have fallen so far into defeatism and despair. Why are you here? Of all people, why are you here, Elijah? Or we might ask, why are you here, Elijah? Which might suggest that we don't understand your choice of location. Hunkered down in a cave, hiding in the dark, away from the action, away from where the work of the kingdom needs to be done away from your calling, away from your ministry? Why are you here instead of where you're supposed to be doing the work to which the Lord God has called you? Why are you here, Elijah? And so Elijah responds to the question. I've been working my heart out for the God of the angel armies, said Elijah. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed the places of worship, murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. See, I imagine his tone here to be some combination of anger, frustration, fear, whining. And so then he's told, go stand on the mountain at attention before God, and God will pass by. Now, if you've spent a second in the military, when somebody tells you to stand at attention, that means you've messed up. Stand at attention, Elijah. God is about to pass by. Buck up, soldier. What is wrong with you, whiner? Pay attention. And then a hurricane, wind, ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God. But God wasn't to be found in the wind. 
after the wind and earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a gentle, quiet whisper. See, this is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. God doesn't come in the violent wind. He doesn't come in the earthquake. He doesn't come in the fire. No, He comes in a gentle, quiet whisper. The New Revised Standard Version calls it a sound of sheer silence. A thin, sheer silence that can be heard. See, this is the most powerful image of God. Not as a forceful wind that blows us over. Not as a shaking and trembling of the ground that causes us to go off balance and lose our footing. Not as a fire that turns up the heat of our fear and our anxiety but gentle, controlled, sensitive to our weakness and our fragility. A whisper. See, there's a saying that the devil shouts at us because he has to keep his distance. But God whispers to us because he's close. He whispers because He is close to us. That's a comforting thought. So when Elijah heard the quiet voice, he muffled his face with his great cloak. And he went to the mouth of the cave and he stood there. And a quiet voice asked, So Elijah, now tell me, why are you here? He muffled his face with his cloak. This gives us a different image of his response, doesn't it? It's the same response. It's the same words. But he's hiding his face in respect and in fear. And you can bet a good measure of shame and embarrassment at his first response. And so he says it again. I've been working my heart out for God. The God of the angel armies. Because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant. Destroyed your places of worship. And murdered your prophet. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. Now we can surmise... We can guess that Elijah has a contrite heart at this point. He's realized that he had failed to trust in God. God who had come through for him in such a mighty way already. Can you hear the repentance in his voice as he repeats his response to God? 
realizing just how foolish it sounds. So does God punish him? Does God chastise him for his unfaithfulness and doubt? No. Not at all. He simply tells him, go back the way you came through the desert to Damascus. God says, I can hear the change in the tone of your response. I can hear that you have humbled yourself and you are now repentant and contrite and that you have allowed my spirit to renew your spirit. And so now return with confidence to where you were before, to your position of victory and favor and grace. What can we learn from Elijah? When the path of our life takes us into circumstances that overwhelm us, when we forget all that God has already done for us and we react with doubt and fear, what can Elijah teach us? Well, for one, we can remember that the peace of God isn't part of the chaos. It's not in the wind. It's not in the shaky ground that we stand on. It's not in the fires of anxiety or fear. The peace of God comes in a whisper. And that whisper reminds us that He is near, that He is close to us, that He is in controlled power over our circumstances. It also reminds us that He's not here to condemn us for our shortcomings and our failures, but rather to lift us up, to dust us off, to get us back into the game, back into the action, back into the kingdom work for which He has called us. And to that we can only say, thank you God for your mercy and your grace and for the whisper that shows us you're close. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.